so hello hello again and uh, continuing the conversation with gordon neil and uh, we're mm, like you are you are uh, as you said you are uh, an avid gamer from very young age right mm -hmm. interested interested in the games industry like first as a, first as a gamer yourself and then slowly mm -hmm. jumping jumping into that industry so i wanted mm -hmm. to talk about your your current and past job experiences a little bit mm -hmm. and i wanted to make uh, a question um, like was was that like doing art in art for game dev was that a choice um that had some roots in your in your past interests or or just like um, like how how did you choose that the art in specifically art for game dev was the thing that you are going to pursue yeah uh i mean well the kind of thing we talked about earlier with margins was was uh i always kind of painted and drawn a lot in my just spare time like it was just it was a hobby that i had that i quite enjoyed um even mocking up album covers in photoshop you know when i used to sing and, and play in metal bands um or more scream than sing but yeah i used to make some album covers and, and variations of that and so photoshop was at the time something that was familiar to me um not as much 3d stuff but yeah i used to paint and draw on the side and when i saw that the guys were doing that kind of thing for games you know it, it just automatically popped into my head that that could be a thing that i could do was was make uh art for video games so you know i didn't know much about the process but i was at the time you know i had the the collector's edition of skyrim at the time which came in the art book so i was kind of you know browsing through the pages looking at the drawings and thinking oh yeah that'd be cool to do like i could do something like that so that was that was definitely the roots of of where it came from was was something that i wanted to do was was paint and draw for uh for games um different from what i do now obviously but i still even draw you know i have a sketchbook at the side of my desk that, that i use that I, I, I sketch in occasionally because i still love to draw it's just um the skill level for drawing uh in games versus the design stuff in 3d that you know i feel with 2d there's a whole uh backlog of foundations that you really need to nail before you go anywhere near designing stuff for for concept games and and, and for making visual developments of, of of ideas you know you have to be a really solid uh draftsman to really nail uh ideation for games there's so much pre-planning to do there 3d not that it's not that it's easier you know it, it's just as involved as, as learning you know the, the fundamental 3d shapes and, and how to work with geometry um but it has a quicker learning curve where you know maybe over the space of six months and stuff like either blender or Maya or max you can really nail proportions and sizes and, and shapes and, and things will start to look like other things you know you can make you know i couldn't really draw a gun as well as I could model one, you know, because when modeling, you know, you start with a lot of prime shapes already and, you know, the stuff is in perspective, it's lit. So building a gun with, with blocks and shapes um, versus drawing it, I think is, is a more streamlined process, I'll say that much. Um, so I think that's where my evolution came from, um, from art was initially deciding in the whole paint and drawing phase and then building it in 3D. Yeah, so so as you said, like uh, you had you had this hobby of drawing, mm -hmm. and and then you like you when you described your your origins, like getting into the industry, you mm -hmm. mentioned you mentioned like the, getting that that first 
job. Like I think it's it's an important experience for every, you know, for pro yes. probably for every industry. But the, like the game dev industry is very specifically like um, for for people that are passionate about it mostly. And um, <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about this first this, this first job that you had and and <laughs> like what what like big lessons you you did learn while, while doing it. Like what what was your impression of it of the industry how it how it runs and and how how do you found yourself in it? I mean, it was kind of a double header at the time where in 2017, because of being at Industry Workshop 2016, I got a chance to do internship at Axis, which was great. But the biggest lesson from Axis was I learned how woefully underprepared I was for the industry, like how just how you know I'd entered the small pond and went into the big river. But then I, I was drowning. I was just, I, I had no idea how to handle the situation. Or I mean, my time access was great, but I feel that like on both sides, you know, there was there was some things that weren't, you know, streamlined or really, I mean, it was also a time where access hadn't really had an intern for a long time. And it was kind of a thing where finding things for me to do was a bit harder because, you know, it, it was trying to be like, everybody had their jobs and their tasks to do, but I was kind of just like an extra peg at the, on the end that needed something else to do. And, you know, I felt like at the time as well, because I had such a huge self-confidence issue. And I also was, you know, as much as, as I'm outspoken in the podcast and in real life, everybody there was so creatively talented and amazing at what they'd done. I just felt so small and insignificant so I didn't really speak up a lot of times about you know I was struggling or I didn't really understand what I was doing or if I had an issue you know if I had an issue access sometimes like people just couldn't help me because they were so busy with what they were doing like it, they just couldn't take a minute away so the big thing I learned there was that um I needed to be more self self-sufficient I needed to be more on top of my game and putting work out at a level that you know I didn't need to have people holding my hand constantly um that was one of the biggest issues on the flip side of that, at the end of 2018 or the start of 2018, even um, after I'd done my access internship, I also got a job with Red Essence Games, who had me doing uh, 2D uh, color work for animation and, and some PR stuff for them as well. So that was a good experience because it was a small team and I felt more prepared there and I felt like I had a voice because there was only like, you know, five or six of us at the time. So it was that was a better experience. Um, Axis, it was great. It wasn't their fault. You know, again, they were, they were struggling with the whole taking people on. And I was only really there, I think one or two days a week. And it was like, by the time I'd done those one or two days and I struggled, by the time the next week came around, what I was doing the week previous was done. And it wasn't really, you know, it was like, it, it, there was such a gap. It was, it was hard. It was, it was a whole thing between us and them. And, you know, I, I'm just glad they gave me the opportunity. I'll always be thankful for that. But like, I just feel like I just could have, I, I could have approached that so much differently. Um, but I was also younger less experience, you know, uh, there was a lot of things going on. So, um, but yeah, I, I think the whole thing of feeling unprepared is something universal within any job you go into. Um, every single time you go into a job or a, a new gig, you always feel underprepared. You always feel like you haven't got the right information or there's something you need to learn to try and keep afloat. And um, I think the idea I just try to say to people is just, you just got to be honest and try your best um, and the rest will work itself out. So, yeah. Yeah, so so as you said about the, the, those preparations, like everyone, mm -hmm. everyone looking at for for a new job is thinking about like that perfect way of of making uh, your portfolio, like which mm -hmm. which could get you the job, right? So I, I wanted to ask right. you if 
if you like, what's your take on on a good game dev oriented portfolio? Like, what should it contain? How should it look like? Maybe how to approach it? Hmm. Yeah, it's a big question. Um, I think in general you have to have some kind of idea about where you want to land in the industry. You have to have an idea of like it's hard because asking somebody to be pigeonholed really early in the career is almost impossible because you want to kind of do everything. You want to have a taste of like every piece of the pie and, and find out which piece you like best. And it's hard when you're, I mean, like I had a, I had a weird experience where, because I was already in my thirties, I was already expected to be working really quickly. People who are in their twenties and just going to university, that's the best time to experiment and really find what you love, you know, whether it be environment art, uh, sketching, painting, you know, VFX, UI, user experience, uh, you know, sound development. There's there's a huge slew of games uh, that need different types of jobs. And uh, you just really have to find what you're, I think what you're a fan of. You know, like for me, early on in my career, I was always a huge fan of Blizzard, which has kind of been controversial now because of all the stuff that's going on. But yeah, like those early days of playing Warcraft and World of Warcraft, um, more things that influenced me in my art journey. Um, and I always loved that style. But then I also love super hyper-realistic stuff as well. Like I played a lot of games where the level of graphical fidelity within the realism was something that really appealed to me. So, you know, um, I think at the time, even when I interviewed Tyus Lintner back in 2015, 2016, he had been working on The Division with Ubisoft. And, and that was a game that I've, to this day, still love. And, you know, the, the art style for that was obviously very far removed from Warcraft. So, you know, everything appealed to me. So it was hard for me early on trying to pick one particular thing. Um, I think the fact even though that I do 3D now is great. But then, like I said, I still draw for fun. You know, I still look at other styles. So when it comes to a game dev portfolio, I think you really just need to try and think, you know, where do I want to work in 10 years? You know, is it Naughty Dog? Is it Sony Santa Monica? Is it Blizzard? Is it some small indie dev? You know, or is it somewhere over in Europe? You know, like CD Projekt Red or Ubisoft or, you know, uh, Arcane, you know, who are doing great things as well. So there's a whole slew of studios and you really have to try and nail down, even if you can't nail a studio down, even making the distinction between realism and stylized is a great thing to break down early on because, you know, I used to talk to some of my friends who worked at Rockstar North here in, in, in Scotland who make Grand Theft Auto, obviously. And those games are all based in cities, but they used to get portfolios full of people's work that was like orcs and fantasy armor and swords and shields. And the guys are saying like, how does that correlate to Grand Theft Auto? You know, how does that, you know, we make we make adventures that are based in cities with real people. You ha we have to see that. And uh, yeah, I think you just have to really think about when you're targeting a specific studio, what is their art direction? What's their stylistic approaches and choices? Does my... Does my stuff emulate that? And even when it comes to just a level of like finish and polish, you maybe need to do your research and find out. For me, what I done was I went and looked at the people who already worked there. So, you know, Halo, Santa Monica, those other places. I would go and look up the artists on the credits because you can easily see the credits of games and see who was the environment team, who was the concept team. Go and try and find their work because everybody's an art station at this point. Um, and find out what their portfolio looks like. And then hold yours side by side on the screen and say, well, how far away am I? Like, does it look like the thing on the right or does it not? And then try to measure like how much a percentage you're off. Um, if it's night and day, if it looks nothing like it, then you need to say to yourself, well, right, great, what steps do I need to take to get there? And uh, and just fill in the blanks. Um, 
you know, studios at the moment, especially during the pandemic, are, are hungry for people to, to come in and, and do stuff uh, remotely. Um, people always talk about it's so hard to get a portfolio seen, but, you know, and, and that's the one question I get even at talks. I've done a, a couple of talks at universities where people were like, what's the best way to get studios to see my work? What's the best way to get my stuff out there? Do I have to hire a marketing team? You know, do I have to pay Instagram and promote my stuff? And I'm like, it, it is universal through every interview I've had in the last five years. If your work is good enough, people will hire you. People will seek you out to do work. Like, without a doubt, you know, within a month or two after working for Fabricated Madness, I had two offers from two major studios um, that I can't talk about. But, like, I turned them both down. But, like, you know, that was the level I was getting to where my stuff was at a level where people were like, could you come work for us? And that didn't include me sending anything or showing anything. Like, people just actively saw my work and messaged me. So, you know, it's a thing where it doesn't matter how, you know, uh, overpopulated or, or saturated art station gets. If your work is good enough, it will stand out on its own 100%. So I think that's the best advice I could do is just make awesome shit, pick what you want to do, make it great, and eventually people will find you. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's great, great advice. And I, I wanted to just ask you whether you've seen, mm -hmm. like, regarding this realism versus stylized thing mm -hmm. that you mentioned. Uh, have you have you had the chance of seeing that that latest uh, Matrix experience with Keanu Reeves and? Uh, yep. This this one it's with ridiculous. This yeah, this one with Unreal yeah. Engine. Oh no, Unreal Five. Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous. The the level of lighting and texture work in there like even the fact that i was watching some people like alana pierce play through it and uh just watching her reaction and it was crazy just you know going under like the transition of lighting from going on mainline motorways to the underpasses where all the lighting changes again but you can then you can see the buildings in the background and every building looked realistic and i mean it's getting to a point now where it's scary right it's like you're crossing that threshold now of like where's the distinction between real life in the virtual world you know like we talked about this in our company because you know we're heavily invested in the metaverse and uh you know that's a thing where you know musk talks about where the 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 way technology is, is advancing it's obviously going to get to a point where we're in a simulation right we're going to get to a point where our real lives will be gone and we'll live in a virtual space like you know that's that's the thing i think is going to be interesting to see in my lifetime like how quickly that comes in and and takes over people's lives because already you know especially during the pandemic people live now more online behind computers than they ever have and when the oculus quest 2 launched last year and i got a headset you know vr for me has been the change in gaming that i've been waiting for you know i've played games since i was four years old i've played every iteration of every video game ever you know i get bored now with some games because it's just like there's just there's no new territory they're really crossing. I tell you, the one thing that actually really impressed me the last couple of years was Death Stranding. That game for me was such an out-of-the-box, thinking outside of the box, an experience. You know, people called it a walking simulator, but I'd never seen a game like it. It was so beyond what I thought video games could be. And the technology they were using also for the, the Megascan stuff <clears throat> was incredible. You know, the, 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 the rate at which they put that game out in what, less than two years, um for it to be what it was i thought was an absolute technological achievement um and uh the game itself was so diverse and different that 
I just couldn't put it down. It was the first game in years I really just had to sit 40, 50 hours and I had to finish it almost in one weekend. I just couldn't put it down. It was so engaging. And uh, I think when you then mix those types of experiences with VR, I think we're just going to get into a whole new world of entertainment. I think the way that Musk uh, talks about VR and now the way that Zuckerberg is now using it with Oculus, I think, you know, it's almost inevitable that you're going to have those cross experiences where indoors you've got the, the Oculus on, outdoors you've got the glasses on, and those two people are mixing constantly. I think that's the that's the next evolution and where computer graphics will probably start to really need to live. Um, like the, the consoles now have got to a point where the technology is so exponential and it's incredible that we're not seeing huge iterations from generation to generation, but the VR space now is where things are getting exciting. And I think that's the next leap. Because um, if, if you could play that Matrix experience with an Oculus Quest, I mean, dude, like what would be beyond that? Like if you could walk physically into the Matrix in a VR headset, you know what I mean? With that graphical fidelity, game over. Yeah, yeah, but there's there's also like you know this creepy, a little bit scary thing about that, right? Mm. That blurring of mm -hmm. uh, the blurring of that line, you know, between yeah between the entertainment and and the real life, mm -hmm. and uh, you know the, maybe maybe that's like an old old man talking. Or, uh, or, yeah, I, I, no, I no, that, but you're you're right. What you're saying, yeah, that's that sentiment. Maybe like especially in older generations that that you know all that. Mm -hmm. All that technology with entertainment and video games, uh, th this is like mostly um, like major time wasters, and mm -hmm. not, if not even health or or like addiction threat mm -hmm. to, for for people. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, how how do you, you know, how, how do you relate to that? You know, that sentiment. And maybe there's a there's some substantial yeah. like unique benefits that that uh, the games can provide for humanity or for people generally. I think, yeah, I mean, like, as somebody who's played games his entire life, games have done more good for me than bad. I mean, you're talking, like, the social skills, hand-eye coordination, problem-solving, language, speaking, you know, like, there's so many nuances that games bring to somebody creatively as well. You know, every time I open a new world or go into a new story into a world, it fills my imagination with things I can do and I can see, and it inspires me to make art. You know, like, you know, when a game comes out, like The Last of Us or, or something like that, and you see the world that they've created. You know, there were so many people like myself and Cody did in a fan art painting of The Last of Us 2. I'd done a real, like a derelict building, abandoned with banners and stuff. It's one of the best paintings I'd ever done. Um, I mean, it was obviously mostly photobash, but like, you know, that inspired me to make that. And I think games inspire generations. It's kind of like when Star Wars came out in the 80s and 70s, right? You know, the people who now work in ILM were the people who went to open the night at Star Wars. You know what I mean? Like, now we have things like the Matrix demo, right? Now, can you imagine a kid at like, I don't know, 10 years old playing that game and thinking like, this is how it started. Not going back 30 years and looking at something like Pong, right? For instance, where that's where we started. You know, in the last 30 years, technology has advanced so quickly. That's the scary part of it that Musk talks about. Uh, every time I say Musk, by the way, I'm talking about Elon Musk, but he talks about in a lot of his, his, his broadcasts where he, he says that, AI needs to be regulated. It really needs to be slowed down. It's, it's expanding at such a rate that it is getting worrisome. And people talk about the matrix as if it's real and we're already there. But people also see the matrix as like what could be. Because if people looking at the, the origins of the matrix, right? The matrix began because we created AI. AI got out of control. And then because we feared it, we tried to destroy it. And, you know, that created a war. 
the war which we lost and went underground with. And then we had to basically survive in tunnels because, you know, the machines ruled the surface. Um, so it's a thing where it seems so science fictiony and far-fetched. But at the same time, if you look at where we are now, it's not that it's impossible. It's more like it's inevitable, right? Like it's going to happen at some point. You know, when do we get to the point where we say to ourselves, this is too much, we really need to slow down or we really need to regulate? And, you know, it's like when, you know, the first sets of people in the Manhattan Project created the atom bomb. Mm -hmm. The whole thing of creating the atom bomb wasn't really to kill people. It was to advance technology. But then the technology was used for war. So it's like, even though the AI and the technology is a great set of circumstances for game making, people could on the same bread use it for notorious purposes. You know, if you look at the Boston Dynamics guys who are making the dogs, a lot of those are now being implemented into military tech and private military tech to, you know, do bomb sniffing or be escorting people through different scenarios in Iraq. So, you know, the intention was never made, the intention of Boston Dynamics was never to make a military dog. It was to make a robot that worked and helped people. But now, they, obviously, the government's got involved and are now using it for, for their purposes. Same with drones, you know. So, like, there's a fine balance between entertainment and war, which is crazy to think that, you know, this whole thing of, like, well, is it a great technology to advance? Yeah, but then what's the applications of it beyond games? You know, how is that going to affect other people? And, and it's the same with Musk. It's funny as well with, with Elon, how he talks about technology and how it's scary, but he's the guy that's wanting to put chips in people's brains. You know I mean, which is just equally as scary. So... Um, yeah, I keep thinking back to games like Deus Ex and their whole struggle with that game, especially games like Human Revolution, where they talk about people who start to get augmented bodies and are then the outcasts in society who fight with normal people. So it's like, yeah, there's a whole thing going on there. Yeah, it's it's like we're we're living in the in the yeah science fiction age, sort of. But, yeah. but if you if you read through you know through like all the literature, you find these kind of these kind of conflicts like emerging, like with, with, with mm -hmm. Frank, Frankenstein, for example, right? This, this is like a yeah. kind of the same issue, like technical mm -hmm. advancements leading to to breaking down barriers that were were impossible to break down before. Yeah, and then it's it turns out to be like turning against mm -hmm. its creator. It's like it's like a yeah. musical musical struggle, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I wanted to ask also, like we're talking about these new emerging things. Uh, mm -hmm. You you mentioned that you started a new job at Fabricated Madness, and you're mm -hmm. working. Uh, as I read, you were you were working on a game that revolves somewhat around uh, the hot and, for some, the dirty word NFTs. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, could you tell yeah. us about the job if if you know NDA is. Yeah, um, I mean the great thing about us being a startup and uh, and the way we've kind of worked in that company is that we're, we're very public facing. We're, we're being very transparent about things we're working on. There's definitely some stuff that we are keeping, you know, behind the scenes that we're not showing just yet. But the, the bulk of things that we're making, uh, even some of the models I'm making, you know, you've seen them up on March Station. Matt's very keen to get popularity for the, the project because, you know, it's going to be a thing where we're going to just need as many eyes on this project as we can. NFTs, you know, oh God, I just done this interview with Carl Ortiz and we just talked at the end for 20 minutes about NFTs and, and the future of the industry. I think, love it or hate it, NFTs are going to be here to stay. You know, there's there's no way we're ever going to get rid of them. It's just going to be another part of the industry that we're going to have to get used to. The problem with NFTs just now is that there's no regulation. There's no way to try and police it or make it so that 
artwork can't be stolen. I mean, DeviantArt and a lot of other people are really starting a great program with AI where if they find that people are selling the work and it does belong to somebody, they're either bringing it down or making, making people return the money or send the money to other people who deserve the money, who made the piece. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Um, but the technology is so new that there's obviously going to be a lot of resistance. Um, even the fact that I think people still talk about the economical impact of the, you know, the carbon footprint. Um, first of all, if you go to a really good YouTube channel called Climate Town, or this is Climate Town, um, there's a guy there who's a, a political, uh, no political science, environmental science major, a master's, in fact, a learned level uh, of environmental science. And he talks about how one great fact is that the carbon footprint is bullshit, right? Like the carbon footprint is something that people actually made, specifically oil companies, to put the emphasis of the world impact of uh, you know, oil and, and gas on individuals. So they take the responsibility off the corporation and put it onto the person. So things like in Scotland, how we have three different recycle bins outside our homes to separate paper, plastic, cardboard. At the end of the day, all of that stuff goes to one landfill and goes into one place. It was something like since, since like, I don't know, since 1976. The world's collection of plastic, there's only been actually 10% of it that's been recycled. So 10% out of 100, you still got 90% of plastic in the world. You know what I mean, like people think that us separating things into our bins is making a difference. It does in a slight way, but no as big as you'd actually think. And it's the same with the, the carbon footprint where people talk about like, you know, the, the, the guys in China who are, are mining crypto right now. It's not a great setup, I must admit. I'm not a fan of it. But at the same time, there's people, m- major corporations who dump tons of oil, crude oil into the ocean. You know what I mean? Like as much as we can try to save the planet, if they're doing that constantly, you know, it's just totally counteracting what we're trying to do. So with NFTs, the big focus initially was the the Ethereum crypto specifically, because that was what people were using to, to buy and sell uh, NFTs. The Ethereum at the time, exactly as it said, wasn't the greatest use of the economic strategy. And it was, it did have a bigger carbon footprint. It was a huge carbon footprint on, on the world because it took so much energy to mine. We specifically went to wax for two specific reasons. One, because it's more economically friendly and doesn't take anywhere near as much uh, time to mine or produce. And it's specifically for gaming. So the wax uh, crypto was set up so that people could buy and sell and make skins and other things for games. And those could be taken to loads of other games. So that, so if you bought a skin in Fortnite and you could only play it in Fortnite, that's kind of limiting, right? But if you could buy that skin in Fortnite and then use it in Halo or use it in God of War, you know, like if that's the reach it could have, you'd be more invested to buy that skin because then it has a far reaching, uh, you know, use beyond one game. So that's the reason we're on wax. So, you know, there's a way of approaching NFTs and other things within that category that aren't as dangerous as people think it really is. Um, I think, a lot of people, like anything on the internet, you need to go do your research, right? You need to really go do unbiased research that's specifically and independently sourced and something that you can look out and say, well, here's the key points, here's the pros, here's the cons, and make a decision for yourself based on that information. Don't listen to people hyping it on you know, YouTube videos or, or people who you know, have done no research on Twitter and just want to flame people because they think it's horrible. There's different levels of it. There's so many different cryptocurrencies, different NFTs. You know, you can't just point one finger at it and say that's bad, that's good. You know, there's so much 
gray matter in between. There's such a huge spectrum that you really have to go and do your own research and find out what works specifically for you. If you want to get into NFTs, well, you know, maybe look at something like OpenSea because OpenSea at the moment are, are using, you know, some really more eco-friendly NFT, uh, you know, currencies, with cryptocurrencies. And, and, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of guys now who have went to Wax because it is the better alternative. So, um, so we're, we're basically, to go back to the original question, we're building a card battle game that the cards are NFTs and those are sold separately on um, like Atomic Hub and other places where you can buy the cards for Wax. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, like you can trade them, you can sell them, you can burn them and make other ones. You can get super rare ones that are animated, that move. Um, we're launching a set three in January, which is going to be a whole new set of them where we'll have rare ones where they're like sketches or ones that move and have different borders. So we're really digging into that. And we're working with a company in LA right now who are a game company who do mobile games. And we're making a, a, a card battle game that... Um, that emulates some other mobile games that we're taking kind of bits and pieces from others and making their own version. But yeah, that's what we're working on. Um, so that mobile game is going to come out hopefully next year. And then on top of that, you know, we're in talks with several studios about uh, an animated TV series. And we're also talking to a couple of Hollywood execs about making a feature motion picture. So a movie um, based on the license of Dr. Zamzi. Um, and what we're working on specifically, what I'm working on, is we're making a 3D adventure game world that will involve Dr. Zamzi. So you'll be able to walk about his lab. There'll be a whole world building thing where you'll be able to walk in the world of Galligan and see all that. Um, and then we're going to try and turn that into a metaverse so that people can come visit it and live in the world and interact with the, the people. So um, yeah, there's huge potential for what we're doing. And, and that's obviously at the moment attracting a lot of outside investors to get involved with us super early on the ground floor. Um, and we talk about that openly. You know, we talk about it in our podcast where uh, at the moment we're, we're sitting there and having meetings with venture capitalists and we're looking at uh, some heavy investment that would totally change our, our frame and could afford to hire a lot more people on and, and get people involved. So, um, you know, we'd be beefing out an environment team. We'd be looking for some concept artists and, and, and PR people. So, yeah, the, the, the infinite potential is great. And just to end what I'm talking about really quickly, the guy who hired me, Matt Gazer, is the first guy I emailed back in 2009 to ask what a concept artist is. And 10 years later, he hired me. So yeah, full circle. Yeah, you never know where, where it takes you. This kind, yeah. of, this kind of events, meetings and stuff. And uh, talking about the NFTs, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. you mentioned that the, you know those uh, kind of like Wild, wild West things. Mm -hmm. Like I've read recently, uh, like Lowish, mm -hmm. uh, the mm -hmm. illustrator. illustrator. Um, mm -hmm. she, she, she like said on, I think on Twitter that, that she recently mm -hmm. had, had like super, super many people just like selling her art on right. NFTs and like, she's mm -hmm. like, like that happened, I think like with every new technology, like at least internet technology that's evolving, like the yeah. same thing was happening with, with, uh, Napster and, you know, the yeah. mus musical files, mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. there was like heavy fighting with that at that time. Until yep. things like slowly got civilized and, and maybe you know the, the streaming services appeared and like yep. the whole industry had to kind of like conform to the new situation and, and find ways yep. of civilizing the uh, yeah how how it's how it's working and some some kind of anarchy mm -hmm. is it's like inevitable when revolutions like that happen right yeah I think it's the thing where as well where 
people getting their artwork stolen digitally is not something new. You know, it's been happening for a long time where, you know, even a couple of years ago, people uh, and companies around the world were stealing people's concept art to use for their game without the permission, or they were either buying it and selling it on playmats or t-shirts without the permission, you know, um, especially a lot of people within China who were, were taking artwork from Western artists and then putting it on stuff. And, you know, I think what really arcs NFT people and people who really get upset about it is that the NFTs can generate so much money, so much capital. You know, if people are selling t-shirts with your artwork, they might make like a couple hundred bucks or something. Someone sells one of your pieces, you know, you're losing maybe out on like 20 grand worth of money. And uh, I think... I'm not speaking for all artists here. I'm totally not putting a blanket statement across, you know, Loish or any other people. But I think what arcs them is like when people have struggled their whole life to make a decent living, you know, especially as freelance artists and illustrators, we all know how difficult it is. If somebody can walk in like that and take your artwork and make 20 grand with it, of course you're going to be pissed. Of course you're going to blame NFTs and make a whole case that it's ruining the industry because that could have been your money. That could have been something that could have helped support you as an artist. The people I know early on, Raphael Grizetti is a great example of it. You know, Raph got in super early, learned about NFTs, got his work minted, started selling stuff. And now Raph has made, I don't know if I can talk about it, but he's made a lot of money, you know, doing what he does. But he dived into that technology head first. And he's one of those type of guys that, you know, every time something new comes out, he'll just dive into it and learn about it and try to make it work for him as an artist to make him money and a bit more fame. Um, Mache Kutiara, we were just talking about him, right? He yeah. has just minted one of his first NFTs as well and is selling it. He's doing great. Um, Sandra, one of my buddies as well, who's also Polish, great as well, doing amazing work, minted NFTs as well. So, you know, there's a space there for you to dive in. You know, if your stuff's getting stolen, you know, it totally sucks and shouldn't be happening, and those people should be prosecuted or getting fined 100%. Um, that shouldn't be happening. But then, Take the opportunity to then say, well, my artwork sold and it was popular. Let's dive into that space and let's start mixing it up and selling more stuff and making more NFT products. And then I could actually make bank off it and maybe retire as an artist. Because, you know, some guys I've seen sell stuff that's gone for like one and a half million pounds. I mean, that's enough money. You could probably happily buy a house and a big car and a lot of your financial troubles would be over. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a it's a difficult place to look right now because it's such a wild west. But like at the same time, we've got to tame it as artists and we have to get in there and really look at how is it going to benefit me and how can I turn this situation so that I come out of it financially stable. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I, I think it's also happening because of that hype, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that there's a lot of people who just like want quick money and just uh, yes. don't, don't really want to do the hard work. Like, like, yeah. The, like the people K case came mm-hmm. out and all the people were mm-hmm. thinking like, oh, the, the, these, no, just like digital pictures mm-hmm. sell for so much money. And like they, yeah. they kind of disregard all this, all this path that led to, to like, like people to who he is right now, like all the 13 years of doing daily yeah. and like development yep. and growing yep. the audience and stuff like that. And that's that's yep. not just like that he just went out and done some, done some quick renders and sold them for millions of bucks. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's like a long journey. Yes.